when I first went into the ministry, had my first congregation because I had grown up in an evangelical church where <clears throat> uh, there weren't traditions really, except the traditions not to have any traditions. Um, one of the things I decided to do was I decided to follow the lectionary. And the lectionary is a set group of readings read each Sunday, Sunday after Sunday. And the theory behind it is that over a period of time, you'll read all of Scripture. And I thought it was good to not just follow the lectionary in our Scripture lessons, but also to follow it in my preaching. And so I began to preach from the lectionary. And I don't know how long it took me to figure it out, but I'd say maybe three to six months, I realized that again and again, the lectionary was cutting texts off right at the point where you got to the meat of the text. In other words, that a lot of the sort of heavy metal of Scripture was gone, and it was all like Burt Baccarat, you know? It was all like, you know, these like sort of pseudo-musicians playing. And since then, and so I got out of the lectionary and began to preach through Scripture, well, since then, what I've noted is that not only uh, do we take, uh, do we cherry-pick the text of Scripture, but more and more in the churches that I am in when I go on vacation, what I notice is that in even evangelical churches, we simply don't read from the Bible anymore. And uh, specifically, usually, it's, it's normal to have maybe a verse or two here and there, and then to have the sermon text read, but not to have the Scripture read. Well, one of the things we're committed to doing is to read consecutively through books of the Bible. You've been here for a while. You've heard these books read. I'm very grateful that we have a tradition of not following the lectionary, and specifically I'm grateful that we have a tradition of reading through books of the Bible, and that today this text was read accidentally, serendipitously. 1 John 4, verses 1 and 2, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So you have a command from God here, and your command is what? To test the spirits. Why? Because why? Because many, many false prophets are out there. And how are you to test the spirits? Well, those who say that Jesus Christ has come from God are the true spirit. Now, we couldn't have a better illustration of Jesus telling us to do the same thing than we have this morning. Because we're going to pick up the account of Scripture at the place where Jesus, continuing to expose the false prophets of his time, the false religious leaders, tells a parable that puts the point quite intensely and raises the level of hostility between Jesus and the religious leaders very, very high. And you have to understand that Jesus is not blundering into these conflicts. These are not things that are happening because Jesus is an idiot, because he's tactless, because he doesn't know what he's saying. Every single thing that he did was in completely intentional and was done for a purpose. And so it's important we keep in mind as he confronts the religious leaders at the time that he is intentionally exposing the wickedness of these religious leaders of God's people, the Jews. It's important that we see he's not confronting the Romans and their priests 
to the pagan gods, but he is confronting the priests for the true God. And it's important so that you realize that when you have said that Unitarians are verboten, and when you have said that, uh, that Islam is a false faith, and when you've said that you're not going to follow a Buddhist priest, and when you have said that you're not going to be following Joseph Smith or Muhammad, that you have not yet begun to be at the point where Jesus was addressing in his life. You have not yet begun to exercise discernment. Do you understand that? You're not supposed to be going around testing the false prophets because they're Mormons or because they're Islamic. You're to test the false prophets who worship the true God because that's who Jesus is dealing with here. You're to confront those who claim to be serving Jesus Christ and are false. That's who Jesus is dealing with. Now, when I say this, the hair stands up on the back of your, of your neck. And the reason is that we've all cultivated an absence of discernment in our lives. We hate discernment. We hate it. What we want is to be dumb sheep. And we want to be able to just get in line and do what we're told. And then along comes the text that says, Beloved, what? What did it say? It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So, hating discernment, but knowing where to test the spirits, what we say is, well, Pastor Bailey or Tim, you don't get it. It's not Christians we're to judge because they say that Jesus Christ is from God. So, whew, I don't have to judge any Christians. Anybody that claims the name of Christ is somebody that I'm not supposed to judge. It says, judge not lest you be judged. One of the many books that I'm not writing is a book where every chapter is simply a verse that we use to refuse to exercise discernment. So like one of the chapters is, judge not lest ye be judged. Whew. Another one is what? Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. I've heard that in elders meetings. You know, you got some guy, he's a predator on his stepdaughters in his own home. You've got some woman who's had a unborn children in her womb killed, and the, you know, the, the elders sit in the room and say, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And you all realize if a farmer went in and he had a cow that he was to milk and it had mastitis and he said, judge not lest you be judged. Another farmer says, uh, that cow has mastitis. Judge not lest you be. Let him who is without Or is this absurd in any other way except when it comes to the church? And then when it comes to the church, judge not lest ye be judged. Oh, we have high principles, don't we? And we use those principles precisely to disobey the very command of God, which says, Beloved, what? Test the spirits, because many false prophets have gone out. So now... All of this is my way of introducing you to the text this morning, so I'm going to again hit the issue. Jesus is confronting not the Buddhists, 
not the Mormons, not the Muslims, not the Unitarians, not the Scientologists. Jesus is confronting the people who claim to worship the true God. And here's what happens. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will they do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Now, this is a parable, but it's an allegorical parable. It's a parable that is longer than normal with more than the usual degree of correspondence between its characters and elements and the points that are being made. In other words, it's a complicated parable. Typically, parables have one or two points. This has a lot more. Now, how does it begin? Jesus begins it giving us all of the stuff we really need in the first verse. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, and dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, we need to look at what Jesus is saying here, and we start with the landowner. Who is the landowner? Well, the landowner is God. The landowner who planted a vineyard is God, who is the maker of all things and the creator of the universe. And this landowner planted a vineyard. He is the one who appeared to Abraham and told him to get up and go to a land he would show him. And he had Abraham circumcise his household. How? Why? He put a hedge around them and he made it very clear to whom they belonged. He marked them off from the pagan world as a sign that they belong to him and that they worship him alone. The only true God. Then later he sent Moses to rescue these people from Pharaoh. 
Moses led them into the wilderness where he gave them his precious law and commanded that his terms of the contract or covenant between them, they keep it with reverence and obedience, the law of God. So the landowner is not just any God, he's a specific God. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jehovah. His name is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty, who made the Jews a great nation and commanded them to worship him alone, loving him with all their hearts, all their souls, all their might. In Psalm 80, it says, You removed a vine from Egypt. He planted a vineyard. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. And so this is a part of the national the church consciousness of the Jews, that they are God's vine, that they are his vineyard. So the landowner is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and King David. He is the God these scribes and Pharisees claim to worship. He is the God these religious leaders claim to be leading the people to worship. It was deep in the minds and hearts of God's people. They were God's vineyard. And not just any God, the true God, the one and only God. All the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. God planted Israel. And he gave her his law, his word, to guard and protect her from her enemies. Nothing she needed was lacking. She was given priests. She was given the tabernacle and temple. She was given the Ark of the Covenant. She was given the law and the kings. And then she was called to be fruitful and to bear fruit for him. The landowner is God. The vineyard is the nation church of the Old Testament, the people of God then known as the Jews. And he has placed them in a land with all the protection and means of production they need to be safe and in that safety to bear fruit for him. So now the landowner rents out his land, his vineyard, to tenants and he goes on a journey. Who are the tenants, the vine growers? Well, they are the Jews' leaders. They are the ones who were put in charge of the vineyard to guard and protect it and to make sure that it produced fruit, that it produced a profit for its owner. So the tenant growers are the judges, the kings, the priests, and the Bible teachers who are put in charge of the vineyard. Now, this is not hard to understand. This isn't rocket science, is it? It's really pretty easy to understand. God plants Israel. God gives them a mark of his contract with them, his covenant with them. The mark is circumcision. Then he reveals his law to them. He commands them to obey it and to obey and worship only him. He gives them judges and kings, shepherds and priests to protect them and to make sure that he will get the profits he demands from them. To make sure that they produce fruit and that the fruit is his fruit. Now, verse 34 tells us what happens next. When the harvest time approached, he, the landowner, sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And so inevitably, everybody knew it was coming. Even so, Lord, quickly come. 
to the final harvest home. We all know that he is returning. The trumpet shall sound. Right? We all know he's returning. Jesus says when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit, his produce. And so inevitably, everybody knew it was coming. The day of harvest arrived. And the landowner sent his slaves to collect his profit. The owner wants his profit. Now, who are the slaves who were sent to collect the profit? Well, the slaves are all the prophets that God sent to his people to collect his profits. Wish Donna Campbell were here. She'd laugh. The prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, to collect the P-R-O-F-I-T-S. They were Isaiah, they were Jeremiah, they were Ezekiel. Then they were John the Baptist. The prophets came from the owner of the vineyard, from the master, and they reminded the tenant farmers of the duty they had to give the master the fruit of the vineyard. But how did the tenant farmers respond? Verse 35, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. They refused to give the owner his profit, his fruit. So then the owner sent another group. And how did they respond? Verse 36, again he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. And so what conclusion does the owner come to? Well, he decides to send his own son. And he thinks they will honor him. But verse 37 tells us the honor they received. Afterward, he sent his son to them, or they gave He sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now again, this is not complicated, is it? It's not complicated. It's very easy to understand. God sent the prophets, but the tenant farmers, the kings, the priests, the scribes, they killed the slaves that he sent. Again and again and again, they killed them. All the Jews knew it. They all knew what happened to a prophet. We all know what happened to Luther with Rome. We all know what happened to Wycliffe and to Huss. We all know what happened to Bernard of Clairvaux. We all know what happened to Athanasius. John Bunyan. Were they loved and were they accepted? No. Some were sawn in two. We all know that on one particular day, the established state leaders of England removed what? Either 12 or 2,200 pastors from their parishes on one day. It was called the Great Ejection. And to this day, many of the greatest commentaries on Scripture in the English language have been written by those men who were forced to leave their congregations and went home and wrote. And I feed off them all the time. We all know what happens. Jesus in Matthew 23 rehearses the history of Israel 
with these slaves that are sent to collect the prophet. Here's how Jesus rehearses it. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. So that upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then he sums it all up and he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. People make no mistake about it. We're not in error when we kill the prophets and silence them. We're not innocent. It's not complicated and something that we have trouble understanding. We know exactly what we're doing. And it's become a byword in the English language. Kill the messenger. Remember, Paul says, have I become an enemy to you by telling you the truth? We know what we're doing. When the Bible says that the people will surround themselves with pastors who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear, the pastor comes under terrible blame, doesn't he? But what about the congregation that has intentionally chosen a pastor who will scratch their itching ears? Jesus says... Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. And so Jesus tells this story. And the story is what? The story is that the slaves are sent, that they're stoned, that they're beaten, that they're killed. The son is sent. And he is murdered. Because why? Because they want to take the wealth of the vineyard all for themselves. It's just all for themselves. People, this is not hard to understand. As it used to be said, this is as plain as the nose on the end of our faces. This is like smacking us in the face. Profit. Fruit. Is anybody in America today who's seen Christianity today and has seen the glossy uh, product marketing brochures for Crossway Books and Zondervan and Thomas Nelson and, and Multnomah and all the various publishers. Is anybody that's ever gone to the Crystal Cathedral, you've gone there? Been there? I've been there. None of you? I've been there. Sure, I've been there. Okay. Any of you who have ever been at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, I've been there. You've been there? I've been there. Any of you who have ever seen, what's the name of that dainty, quaint, little aesthetic uh, miracle on Monument Square? That effete, dainty, 
religious place? What's it called? Some of you have been paid to sing there. What's it called? Come on. Yes, what is it? I can't hear you. Thank you. Christ Church. How many of you have been to St. Paul's in London? You've been there? Okay. Do we really have difficulty hearing Jesus talk about the fruit, the prophet of the vineyard, going to those who killed him? Do you have difficulty understanding this? Now, aren't you glad I was in London and Indianapolis? You can't hear this text without realizing that Jesus is telling you to use your discernment. And that your discernment is needed not with the Muslims and not with the Scientologists and not with the Buddhists, but it's needed in the house of God. It's needed with those men who God has given the responsibility of guarding His sheep and then producing the fruit He wants. That those men are the ones you are to judge. How could He tell a story like this unless He wanted you to hear it and think, ding dong, I guess I better follow the money. Every journalist is told to do it. Every poli-sci major knows that that's the battle over taxes. Some people think, I don't care what they say, no more money to the government. And other people say, I don't care what they say, as much money as we can get for the government. And everybody agrees, follow the money! Everybody agrees, follow the money! But when it comes to the church, nobody's following the money. Nobody ever thinks anything about the money changers in the temple today. We're just happy Jesus cleaned them out in his time. But the emphasis is not Jesus cleaned them out, but in his time. The idea that Jesus would clean out the money changers in our time is horrific. Because our pastor would be gone. Our elders would be gone. Our relatives would be blown away. Listen, Jesus is telling a story, and like a good storyteller, he has a point. And the point makes it very interesting for the audience. And the point is this, beloved, test the spirits. Test them. I've made a proposal on the Internet. It's out there for everybody to find. And my proposal is that everybody that makes a living trading, profiting off the Word of God, publish publicly their annual income. Seems fair enough to me, doesn't it? Really, I mean, think about it. Shouldn't everybody that makes a living off the Word of God, whether they own a copyright to a translation or they publish books explicating it or they preach it or they have conferences or they counsel with it, anybody who's a merchant of God in any form publicly 
prince in a place where everybody can find out, you know, Bailey, B-A-Y-L-Y, comma, Timothy, 62 or 3 or 4 or some thousand dollars a year, my income. Then you should think to yourself, 60-some thousand dollars a year, is that too much? Is he loving money? And then you should look at me. This should be how you make a decision about a church. You should know the salary of the preacher and then decide whether or not he's profiteering off the Word of God or whether he's producing fruit for God. Right? Can you help but have that application from the text of God's Word this morning? I don't see any other possible application than that. Now, there are many more applications, but I don't want you to miss the one that's right punching you in the face. People, never in the history of the world has there been so much money made off of Jesus Christ. Never has there been a country where so much money has been made off Jesus Christ. Mary Lee's parents' publishing company, Tyndale House, all right, that's her mother now, mother's now. She owns it. How much money has been made just off the Left Behind series? Come on, how much? Well, as of four or five years ago, it was at a billion dollars at that point. Now, I don't mean to say that's all made money because you've got to pay the printers and you've got to pay for the advertisements and everything. You've got to pay borders to put it up front rather than in the back, you know. There's a ton of money going all kinds of places, right? But a billion dollars! And what has Jerry Jenkins done? Jerry Jenkins has bought the Christian Writers Guild. Jerry Jenkins will tell you, if you talk to him, how he's using his money. And how much of it has he gotten? Well, it's said that Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, the last books, nobody denies that when they made contracts a couple of years ago for their next book or books, that those contracts were in the tens of millions of dollars as advance money. Now, I ask you, does this have anything to do with testing the spirits? If a pastor earned $160,000 a year, can you trust him with your soul and the souls of your children? Do you think that you could tell what, how much a pastor earned by how he preached if you listened to the tapes, had no idea what church they came from? Do you think there's a connection between greed and how you preach? <laughs> and everything I'm asking, you know the Scriptures answer it. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's the byword of the Old Testament for false pastors. They say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. They scratch your itching ears. All right? So is it pertinent how much money your preacher earns? College Hill. Just hired a pastor. College Park. I always get them confused because there's Cincinnati and there's Indy. All right. They just hired a pastor. How much is he going to get paid? Don't answer. <laughs> but I guarantee there's not one person here that knows unless their dad's on the elders board. And even then they shouldn't know, right? No, they should know. Money. Money, 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 money. Money, it's a hit. 
don't give me that goody good. Come on, guys. Think about this. The whole world knows it. Christians shouldn't be the ones that don't. Now, what was going on? What was going on was that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the kings and the priests all were determined to use the Roman Empire to keep them in power and to continue to harvest money off of the people of God. That's it. Jesus jeopardized that, and so he had to die because they were refusing to give God the money. They wanted it themselves. They had a system of Corbin set up where God said, honor your father and mother, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to declare our money dedicated to the temple, Corbin. And then our priests will tell us, it's okay, dedicate it to the temple, us, all right, and you don't have to provide for your parents. What's going on in America today? Christians all over the country hiring lawyers to figure out how to squirrel away the wealth of their parents so that when they put them in a nursing home, they won't lose their money. Christians are doing this. And they're doing it with the full knowledge of the pastor. The pastor comes to visit in the home when the person is put in the nursing home. And the pastor says, well, yes, I mean, yes, we need to, yes, I think it's right that you protect your mother's money. I mean, you know, it shouldn't have to go for her being in the nursing home. And nobody ever says to them, you shouldn't put her in the nursing home. You know? The preachers are out to net their profits. This is what Calvin says about this, and it's not in this context. It's in the context of of, uh, the book of Acts, a different text. But Calvin says this. I've got to find him in a second. But now I'm not going to be able to find him. I know it almost by heart because it kept going through my mind the whole time I was preparing this sermon as I remembered it from years ago. Well, the statement is, give me one second, I know it's here. Page four. Page five. Oh, here it is. Calvin on Acts 14:13 he says while the priests are out while the priests are out to net their profits and the people are truly delighted to be confirmed in their errors Satan has such freedom to deceive So what happens The pastors want money the priests want money the scribes and Pharisees want money and so when the prophets come and call for holiness and true worship they kill them they stone them. They kill them. All right? And so then when God sends his son, what do they do to Jesus? They kill him. Where did they kill him? Remember where they killed the son in the vineyard? They took him outside. Where is Jesus killed? He's outside the gate, it says in Hebrews. All right? And the people are all watching this. And all of this is a division between the people who love God and the people who despise God. And it's there for everybody to see. And they see it so clearly that when Jesus says, now what do you think the landowner will do to those servants? It's so clear that they then pronounce their own judgment. Do you see this? Look at what they do. 
What does it say? What it says is this. When the owner of the vineyard, verse 40, comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Is it, is it confusing to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees? Is it confusing to them? No, no. But you may think, well, they said the right thing, but they didn't know it applied to them, right? Well, keep reading. Jesus said to them, did you never? Now, when you say to a preacher who has a master's of divinity and studied at Moody or Dallas or Gordon Conwell, when you say to him, did you never read in the scriptures? It's not a compliment. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is what? Marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Taken away from us? Oh, no, it's impossible. The Jews are indispensable. The evangelicals are indispensable. If God doesn't show his kindness to us, who would he show his kindness to? Not the despicable goyim. Not the Gentiles. He's not going to show his kindness to the Gentiles, the dirty Gentiles. It's us. He's got a lot invested in us by now. I mean, we're the ones who year after year after year, century after century, have shown the grace of God. We're the ones that preach sermons on grace. We're the ones that reform from, from, from Rome. You know, we've suffered for the God. We read Jonathan Edwards. We listen to R.C. Sproul. We have Tim Bailey for our preacher. God can't cut us off. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. In the rest of the New Testament, you see this story, don't you? And it is scandalous to the Jews, and they hate it. And that's the essence of the book of Galatians. It's taken from the Jews, and then they're angry and jealous, and they go after the Gentiles and try to get them to circumcise themselves. God, you will not take it from us. God's not really taking it from us. You better become a Jew if you want to be saved. You've got to be a Jew. You better get circumcised. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. You know what God did to the Jews? You know what he did to them? He excommunicated them. And it became synagogues of Satan. And that's the truth. You understand this. Now, do you think that God could excommunicate the Jews, but he can't excommunicate the branch that was grafted in? Us Gentiles? God's now dependent on us?
This is Matthew Henry writing centuries ago. He says, the Jews shall be unchurched. To the Jews had long pertained the adoption and the glory. To them were committed the oracles of God and the sacred trust of revealed religion and bearing of God's name in the world. But now it shall be so no longer. They were not only unfruitful in the use of their privileges, but under pretense of them, opposed the gospel of Christ and so forfeited them. And it was not long before the forfeiture was taken. Note. Now listen to this. It is a righteous thing with God to remove church privileges from those that not only sin against them, but sin with them. The kingdom of God was taken from the Jews, not only by the temporal judgments that befell them, but by the spiritual judgments they lay under their blindness of mind, hardness of heart and indignation at the gospel. Listen. With complete understanding of the climate we're in today because of the Holocaust, I say, can you imagine a people who are more evident of the destitution of the grace of God than the Jews today? You don't even want to think about it because you don't want to think in categories of race, do you? God does. You don't want to think in categories of families. God does. We don't want to think corporately. We want to think individually. I ask you again, can you imagine a group of people more destitute of the grace of God than the Jews today? You don't want to think about it. Oh, no, that's verboten. We're not allowed to think like that. So what's wrong with Matthew Henry? Listen, God says that he desires fruit. God has this thing about fruit. He wants us to have it, and he wants us to give it to him. And when the Jews didn't give him the fruit, and he sent prophets and prophets and prophets and prophets, then when he sent his son, and they killed the prophets, and they stoned him, and then they killed his son, how did God respond? Forty years later, what did he do? We don't want to think about racial categories, certainly not Jewish categories, but 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was leveled and the people were dispersed and scattered across the Roman Empire. And who made the great ingathering of the early church? Who made it up? Was it the Jews? It was the Gentiles. One of the things I find so fascinating is how we refuse to think in terms of fruit. And we have all these ways of denying that God cares about fruit. I mean, we're so squirrely in coming up with ways that we can explain away God's concern about fruit. I mean, we hate fruit. We hate fruit. We hate any test. We hate any command to test ourselves We hate anything that has anything to do with discernment, with fruit, with... Jesus said, by their fruit you shall... No, no, Jesus, you don't understand. You know, we know because they claim Jesus Christ, and that's it. Anything beyond that is judge not lest ye be judged. You know, and furthermore, if you're looking at fruit, you're a Roman Catholic. That's what Catholics do. You know, Protestants don't believe in fruit. smile I've got you Protestants don't believe in fruit do we we believe in grace by grace alone 
are you saved. And this not of yourselves. It is a gift of love. Not by works, lest any man should boast. Right? But nobody ever quotes the next verse. Nobody ever quotes the next verse. Anybody able to quote it? Nobody heard you guys. You, you were in harmony, kind of. Your engines were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of you yell it. Go ahead, stand up and yell it. Turn around. Created why? For good works. For fruit. For fruit. And so then we say, well, yeah, spiritual fruit, but not physical fruit. I mean, he's not talking babies. I say, you're right, he's not talking babies. You're right. It has nothing to do with babies. I mean, that's so pedant. I mean, that's so, like, dirty. I mean, really. Babies, you know? Don't worry about it. Go ahead and be fruitless. Be sterile. You know, in your marriage bed, because the marriage bed doesn't have to do with the marriage feast of the Lamb. It doesn't have to do with the bride of Christ. It doesn't have to do with any of that. You know, it's simply a lifestyle choice. You know, children are are nasty, and they take away our time to be fruitful for God. I got your number, and it isn't a good number. America is absolutely Filled to the brim with talk of fruit for God. Evangelism and missions and churches and books and conferences and broadcasting networks and tapes and MP3s and contemporary Christian music. And it's just this huge, huge whirligig. And it's going around and around and around and around. Well, evangelicals have stopped having babies. few years ago, do you know what was the ethnic group with the lowest fertility rate of any group in the world? That's probably still true today. Do you know? The Jews. And do you know who had the highest fertility rate of any group in the world? Those bearded grain farmers up in Saskatchewan, known as the Hutterites. But it doesn't have any connection to fruit for God, fruit of the womb, right? And then we come into the church and we say, how many of you have told another person about Jesus Christ and loved them in the name of Christ and given the gift of reconciliation in the name of Christ this week? How many of you have done it? What did God do? Did he send us out to have a mutual admiration society in a closed private building every Sunday at 1030 in the morning? Is that producing fruit for God? Is that what it's all about? Now we have babies and we raise them to love God and that's my fruitfulness. And so now it's this wonderful thing where I can be selfish and devote my entire life to my husband and my children and feel godly. Is that what fruit for God is? It's not what fruit for God is. 
It's a start. It means you're beginning to understand the concept of fruitfulness. What about a church that exists simply to keep the organism running very, very smoothly and it sucks in all the other Christians from all the other churches in town and nobody's ever saved. Nobody's ever born again by the Spirit of God. Nobody ever blushes as they talk to their mechanic about their love for Jesus Christ. Nobody ever is an agent of reconciliation at the grocery store and in the hair parlor. Is that fruitfulness for God? Jesus said this in John 15. He said, I am the vine, and you are the what? The branches. He that abideth in me, and my words abide in him, that man bringeth forth much fruit. And then later he says that the branch that bears fruit, he does what to? He prunes. So that what? So that it can bear even more fruit. I remember a number of years ago, and some of you have heard this story. I was at a church which was filled with conflict and hatred and just every kind of evil towards each other. And... I was preaching my heart out, calling the church to unity and to peace and to truth. One day I went out in front of our house, and we had bought a house that had a lot of ornamental shrubs that had been allowed to get away by the previous owners. And I went out with my pruning shears one day, and I thought to myself, you know, all of these things are gangly and ugly, and I'm going to prune them. But I knew that if you just take a little bit off the top, that then even more sprouts come out and you have a worse problem. I knew the only way to solve the problem in our front yard was to be radical and to take them down about two-thirds of the way. And then they'd grow out of that bottom and they'd be proportional, you know? I used to work as a gardener. All right. And so I set about it. And every single bush that I did, you know what I thought to myself? I thought... I don't know if this bush is going to survive this pruning. Jesus says that the branches that bear fruit, he does what? He prunes so that they will bear more fruit. Some of you are being pruned right now. And I have no question, none, that as you have borne fruit, you will bear much more fruit. I have no question. None. Some of you hate fruit, and you're sitting there, and you will repeat the same condemnation that these men repeated. I don't know your hearts, but I know you sit and resist the Word of God every single Sunday. You look good from the outside, but inside, you're hard against God. You refuse to give Him the worship and the obedience that He is owed. And this condemnation that they responded to Jesus with is true. 
you will be crushed by Jesus Christ. He is no one to take advantage of. He will. Remember the the servant that hid his talent in the soil? Remember what? I knew you were a rough taskmaster. And so I hid my talent. He said what? He said, you wicked, you wicked servant. And then what happened to him? He was cast out where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every single Sunday in here, every single time I preach the word or Stephen or David or one of the other men does, every single time, there's a a great division in this congregation between those who embrace fruitfulness and those who are tightwad and who suck everything in for themselves. And every church is led by pastors who embrace fruitfulness and pastors who suck everything in for themselves. And if you want to see a beautiful illustration, let's go to London. Sunday morning, do what we did. Go to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And it's ugly. And it's at an ugly stop of the tube. It's called Elephant Castle or Elephant on... What, what's it called, Joe? Elephant and Castle. What a name. Elephant and Castle. All right. And you go in the church and it's ugly. It is. It's ugly. I mean, you know, they probably think it's nice, but it really isn't nice. I don't think. And then you look at the people and the people are ugly. They are. They're ugly. How many of you have been there? The people in that church are ugly. You know why? Because Jane Austen never wrote a word about these people. And they'd never be filmed by the BBC. Because none of them are the right color. Except the preacher and the elders, which is another issue. Alright? They're black and red and yellow. And they're poor. (laughs) And spiritual life oozes out of that church. It oozes out of them. And when the word is preached, there's reverence and attending. They listen. And then all Sunday afternoon they go out and they gather in all the children from the poor neighborhoods that are around them. And they love them and they bring them into the kingdom of God. And it's not because it was Spurgeon's church. Go to Westminster where Lloyd-Jones preached. You won't find that there. And then Sunday evening do what we did. Go to Evensong at St. Paul's. And boy, there, this is what I was made to be. All of a sudden, your voice gets deeper when you go in St. Paul's. It's the high mecca of Anglicanism in London. I don't know if they still have the law, but the law used to be no building was to be taller than St. Paul's. Is that still the rule? No building in London. And you walk in the front door, and what do you see? Well, you see metal befitting the king that we worship. It's all gold. And the organ. Ho, ho, ho. And the music is glorious. And the preachers have long gowns. And you just feel like some of the importance rubs off on you. I mean, here I am. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) And I may not be him, but back in the States, I am one of them too. 
But you know what? All around you at Spurgeon's Tabernacle are bathrooms you can use. You know what you can't do in St. Paul's? Taylor tried it. You can't find one. And if you ask them, they tell you, you may not use one. We passed peace with water in the service, but you can't use one. There's gold everywhere. There's robes. God is a seven-syllable word. Gold. And here you have the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it's humble, and it's people of color. And here you have the great, eminent St. Paul's. John was the apostle love, and he said, Dearly beloved, test the spirits. You're glad I'm over in London, but let's come to America and talk about our publishing companies and conferences and CCM industry. You're glad I'm talking about CCM. Let's talk about Trinity Broadcasting. You're glad I'm talking about Trinity Broadcasting Network. Let's talk about denominations. Why is the PCA so filthy rich? Why? Have we used grace to kill fruit in the PCA? You're glad I'm talking about the PCA. Let's talk about Bloomington. Let's talk about Church of the Good Shepherd. Let's talk about you. Are you producing fruit for God? Or are you just a voracious appetite saying, more, more for me, me, more, more for me, me? Where's your fruit? One last pastoral word to you women. Every time I preach about fruitfulness and mention the womb, I do it not because I want to push you to have children. That's not it. It would be fine for me to do that, but that's not why I'm doing it. The reason I'm doing it is that I want those of you who are faithful to God not to be oppressed by this wicked world and think that your life is a waste and that what you're doing doesn't matter. I honor you. I honor you. And I can't say that often enough. I know what you could be doing. I know the jobs you could be having. I know your skills. I know your ability. I know that you are superior to most of the effeminate men in our country today. But don't you ever think that God doesn't care about the fruit of your womb. God takes delight in a woman being feminine and giving herself to that nasty business of childbirth and then raising children and nursing them.